1: So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer,
0: which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. You get 30, 30 GB get
2: 30 you get 20, 20, 20 you get 20, 20, you get 15, 15, 15, 15 just 15 bucks a month.
1: Sold. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch.
3: $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom.
4: Calling Tao City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship SOFA, part of the District of Wonders network, featuring tales to terrify and far fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours.
2: This is the Starship Sova. Everybody welcome. Hello and welcome to show 612. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. It's wet and it's sunny and it's cold. Get that in your heads. I don't know what's going on. If you can hear, listen. Wait on. Can you hear or not? That's me, real fire. Yes, we've got one of those wood burning stoves and I've booted it up today to record Starship over because it's come it's a bit chilled. So I'll tell you what's coming today. Sure. We have an original to Starship sofa. It is Bokka, which is by P.J. Streeter. Yes, that is the main fiction. And we have our very own Amy H. Sturgis. <laughs> Amy H. Sturgis. Yes. But before all that, I want to mention about a little anthology that's kind of kicking its way in Kickstarter Vital, the future of healthcare. Now we've got Ralph, Ralph Ambrose, who is one of our readers and who kind of picks the stories for Starships over. Ralph has... Jumped into the anthology business, and Ralph works in the kind of in the healthcare system, and he's come up with this idea for an anthology, and it just sounds amazing. Actually, I'm going to put a link before I kind of get in talking to it and everything like that. I'm going to put a link to so you can you can kind of go over there and you can you can see who's in it. You know what I mean? There is some wow, man. He has got some names to be honest: David Brin, Sean McGuire, James Patrick Kelly. Paolo, Bajigalubi, they're all in there. Man, it's a big one. But there's only a few hours left, so please pop over and support it. It's vital. It's all about It's like the future of the healthcare, which, you know what I mean, this is kind of important to all of it. And it's nice to see where the the science fiction takes it. Links on the show. Please pop over and support that. That would be fantastic. So the main fiction, let's just jump straight in there. Like I say, it is Bokka, which is an original of Starship Software by P.G. Streeter. P.G. Streeter lives with his wife and son in Maryland, where he teaches high school English. He's been writing since he could hold a pen and telling stories even longer, but he's only recently begun making serious efforts at publishing. His first two published stories can be found in Bars and Sages, Quarterly, and Daily Science Fiction. He's thrilled to add Starship over the list and is especially excited for his work to be captured in audio format and you can find him on Twitter. There's a little link there as well. Now this story is narrated by Anthony Babin who is an aspiring voice actor who looks just slightly off from how, how he sounds. From a secret volcano lay in Minnesota he narrates podcasts and his soul to corporate America and there's little links there to Anthony as well. So, The Starship Suva is very proud present.
0: In Boca by PG Streeter. It's not that Jillian wanted to forget. Had that been the case, she wouldn't have kept the canister on her dresser, so blatant a reminder so close by. It was a trick she picked up from a friend who'd quit smoking, yet she always kept a single cigarette on her nightstand. Willpower and all that, the friend had said. I choose every day to take control. I'm in charge, not it. For Jillian, the problem wasn't addiction. It was memory. She dared not forget, but to immerse herself fully in the past once more, in its pain, its fear, its exhilaration, just might kill her. No. Best to keep the memory at arm's length. So every day, once in the morning and once at night, she would spare a glance at the simple metal cylinder propped up on her dresser. Her gaze would be brief, but fixed. She'd acknowledge her past and the power it once held over her. No more, she'd think, and then she'd move on. It was a ritual dance, one she performed expertly, and it had the desired effect. It kept the past at a safe distance. That night, however, as Jillian sat propped up in her bed, her retine flitting through the day's news, the past came to her. "'Massive leak of classified documents,' the news anchor droned. "'Reveals that the Martian project, thought to have been laid to rest decades ago, has, according to the anonymous source, continued its covert operation.'" Jillian blinked to change the feed, but another voice simply continued where the first left off. "'Using cutting-edge bio- and neuroengineering techniques?' Blink. Another. "'Gross human rights violations,' blink. "'United Earth authorities declined to comment,' blink. "'Or, as Richheim put it, "'drawing out the elements of human potential "'previously relegated to folklore and myth.' "'She blinked once more, and the feed flickered off.' "'In the darkness, Jillian's mental dance faltered, "'and her invisible partner took control.' Unbidden sense-perceptions bubbled up to her mind's surface, cool pads pressed to her temples, the smell of antiseptic, a bombardment of colors and sounds and a full-body tingling of the skin. Through an exertion of will, Jillian pushed these sensations away. She breathed deeply, deliberately, measuring the air coming in and going out, and turned her thoughts to her work. After all, She had an appointment in the morning. New patient, first thing. She needed her rest. Jillian closed her eyes and focused her thoughts on a simple fact. Work meant dealing with other people's problems, not her own. With that, sleep came for her. It was mercifully dreamless. 8 a.m. came round in the blink of an eye. It brought Calvin Lucas to Jillian's office. He brought silence. The new patient scrunched his eyes shut and breathed deeply, sinking back into his chair's faux-leather upholstery. He was younger than Jillian, thirty-eight according to his chart. But he had an air of weariness about him that aged him considerably. "'Mr. Lucas,' Jillian sang. "'Cal,' he said, his eyes still closed. "'Call me Cal, Dr. Balsam.' "'Cal,' she agreed. Then... Why don't you start by telling me what brings you here today? His eyes opened to slits, then shot sideways. Did you catch the news last night? Gillian prided herself on her professionalism. As befit her line of work, she had no trouble separating her personal feelings from the concerns of her clients. Now, as always, she maintained her composure as a matter of course. Nonetheless, she felt something tug. Something small, very deep in her ribcage. A pinch, that's all. The leaks? she asked tersely. He nodded, and the acute pinch became something more. She recognized it, like a vine rooted in the slim interstitial spaces between muscle and bone. It expanded, clenched onto her insides, tightened. Is this of... "'Personal interest to you, Mr. Lucas, cow. She formed the words carefully, her face a well-crafted mask. "'What does my file say?' "'It says you're a veteran,' Jillian conceded. "'Does it say which division?' he ventured. "'He wants me to say it for him.' Instead, she deflected back to him once more. "'No, but... both lunar wars? And a Purple Heart?' She managed an expression that conveyed both admiration and pity. It came at great effort, however, despite her genuine feelings of sympathy. Martian, she thought. "'The bastards have fully militarized the project.' What she felt was guilt. Cal thought he detected a glint in Dr. Balsam's eye. What did it signal? Recognition? Understanding? No. Merely a practiced expression, he thought. The appearance of empathy. Part of him wanted to hole back up. To burrow into the chair, give canned responses, thank her and be on his way. But he'd gotten himself this far. Why stop here? He willed himself out of the laconic mood he'd adopted, then went for it. Yeah, look, can I... can I tell you about a dream? Is, is that something people do here? I don't want this to get too... hokey? Something like that. Dr. Balsam adopted a warm smile. It was reassuring enough, and Cal took another long, measured breath. He began again. Okay, so, I'm back there, in my dream. I'm back there, Lunar Base 3, just inside the veil. You know, just across the line, on the dark side. Dr. Balsam nodded, her expression intent. Cal waited for an interruption, waited for her to steer him away from this topic, or to connect all the dots allowed for him. No such luck. Actually, he said, Shifting to an almost professorial tone. People might not know this, but the far side isn't always dark. It just doesn't face us ever. Each side is in the light for about two weeks, and then dark for two. LB-3 was on tracks, miles of them, and the whole base would slide around to keep up with the shadow. They had to keep us in the dark, because... She let his words remain unsaid, waited. Cal found he had no choice but to continue. So, I'm back on the base, but the war's over. I'm back for, like, a reunion gala? Even though, yeah, right. But there I am, and there's cocktails and hors d'oeuvres and all that. And I find myself standing face-to-face with Sergeant Bynes, my CO. Even in my dream, I find it funny. It's been ten years, and he hasn't aged a day. We're standing there, holding our cocktail glasses, talking about the old times. Good God, he says the bastards didn't know what hit them, not that first time anyway, that first foray into the light, the moment you all changed, Christ Jesus, you were brilliant and And now he's poking me right here under my left rib cage, just jabbing his finger in. That's the spot right where I got hit by the second l w the proximans knew what was up. Knew what we were, knew how to hurt us. Another pause. Take your time, Dr. Balsam said, almost sotto voce. Cal instinctively clasped it, the twisted ball of metal he kept in his pocket, swathed in a small velvet draw bag, his souvenir. He swallowed, forcing saliva down a dry throat. I say to him, Sir, my wounds, sir, please. But he's jabbing and jabbing, saying, What is it, Private? Didn't we teach you to be tougher than that? You were a killer, an animal, a force of nature. And then things change suddenly, like they do in dreams. And he's not jabbing me with his finger, or with this old, ornate cane he always carries. And now I'm shirtless, right there in the middle of that fancy party. He's prodding at my scar with the metal end of the staff, and I say, Sir, that cane... And he says, Antique Silver, what's the matter? See, it doesn't hurt a bit. He starts poking himself with it, as if to show me. No big deal, you know? Cal stared directly into Dr. Balsam's eyes, and he knew for certain, at that moment, that she understood. Understood who... what he was. But she didn't say a word. Just listened. See, it's all true. The leaked documents... Everything you saw on the news? We created it. The government, I mean. They created this damn plague and released it. At random. In people's fucking flu shots. Cal felt lightheaded. The room seemed to rock from side to side, like a boat at sea. Still, now that he had opened up, he couldn't stop. He let it all out. The first time I... The first time it happened, I remember waking up in an alley with a terrible stinker about me and it tasted like copper in my mouth. I didn't tell anyone, but when the rumors started and then the news reports trickled in, I started to put the pieces together. It happened again before I had accepted it, dealt with it, but by the third month I had a plan. Drove out as far as I could into the Nevada desert then dropped my keys and walked a few miles away from the car before sunset. Kept everyone safe, except maybe a few coyotes, desert hares. But still, I know that those first two times... those, Those first two times, I... Dr. Balsam's facial composure wavered, just a bit. Cal saw the slightest twinge, the briefest falling of her mask, but she regained it. You know it's not your fault, Calvin. Cal's vision blurred as the tears welled up. He blinked them away and kept going. They turned us into killers. And then they hunted us. They announced a task force within weeks of the first confirmed sighting. And they started to take us down, publicly, on video. This was all less than a year into the First War, mind you. When they announced the program, Two Tours, Amnesty, and an Honest God Cure, well, I, I felt like I didn't really have a choice. She leaned forward, placing her hand on his. Her touch nearly made him jump, but he caught himself, caught the sincerity and comfort of the gesture, and let himself sink into it. He held back more tears, then tried to breathe deeply as they sat in silence. They come to check on me every month now, you know, Cal said after some time. Cure doesn't nix it for good. I just go through a pack of pills each month. And they come two days before... before it would happen. Take my blood, check hormone levels, make sure I've been good, pop the pills. Do you ever think about not taking them? She asked almost casually, as if they were making small talk. God, no, came his response. But I think about... I think about that dream. Even when I'm awake, there's always that silver staff prodding at my wound. And I think about the power. Back then, in the light of the moon, I felt like I was invincible. I think about that. About how good it felt. I could walk on the goddamn moon. No helmet, no suit, no tank. I could leap twenty feet high. I could tear a... I... I could do anything. Cal swallowed again. Dr. Balsam was stone-faced, unblinking. And now? And now... I won't go back. I won't let myself... become... I won't. But now... Each day feels like a performance. It feels like playing dress-up, playing at a life. Dr. Balsam's face twitched. Not fear, not surprise, but the hint of a smirk. You know, hundreds of years ago, in the heyday of Italian opera... Cal practically snorted. Opera? (laughs) Okay, sure, Doc. Tell me about opera. I will. Before the show started, before they went on stage, they didn't say break a leg, for good luck or to ease their nerves. To give each other reassurance, they'd say, In Bocca Lupo. It meant, Into the mouth of the wolf, Cal said. Then, What? I'm good with languages. She smiled again. Apparently. And you're right. By acknowledging they were stepping out into... Well, to call it danger might sound pretty laughable to you, but performance is scary, and— Yes, I think I understand that. Performance is scary, and acknowledging the danger, the fear, it gave them strength. In Bocca Lupo, Cal repeated. Then, stealing himself and standing suddenly, he said, Thanks, Doc. I think you've given me what I need. He heard the words, Next Thursday. A half-question, half-command, as the door shut behind him. After Calvin Lucas left, Jillian slowly swiveled in her chair to face her desk. Almost mechanically, she extended a single finger and touched an icon on the desk's surface display. In a serene voice, she asked her assistant to cancel the rest of her morning appointments. Then she killed the display and locked the office door. Jillian fell to her knees and clenched a throw pillow tightly to her stomach. She held back a dry heave and felt her body shake. They hadn't stopped. Not with walkers. Not with mining enemies' dreams for intel. Not with lies and secrets, chess games of intelligence and counterintelligence. No. They'd weaponized human beings. Turned their bodies into tools of war and this time they had not even bothered with the pretense of volunteerism. Worse, she'd known. How many years had she stared down her little metal canister while ignoring the world around her? How many years had she acknowledged her past and ignored the simple truth that, for others, the nightmare wasn't over? She'd known. When men and women started to change, she'd understood, in her bones, that this wasn't random, wasn't nature. When the United Earth military managed to hold off the invading Proximans, twice, she'd known that it was all due to some new iteration of the project. She'd simply ignored it. Now? A small consolation, perhaps. "'She could help Calvin Lucas. "'She could talk him through his trauma. "'Maybe even help him move past it all in ways she hadn't. "'Still, something further needled at her mind. "'At some instinctive level, she knew something else was wrong. "'Of course it's wrong,' she murmured aloud. "'Everything about this is wrong.' "'She squeezed the pillow tightly.' "'Then, in boca lupo,' she said to herself and stood. "'Dr. Balsam did not know, could not have known, "'how those words twisted and contorted in Cal's mind "'as he stepped out of her office. "'She could not have known the plans "'that formed in his rapidly spiraling thoughts as he headed home. "'Those words, they held poetry.' They held power. He would utter those words once more, he vowed, later that evening. He would speak them to the darkness, to the shard of gleaming metal he carried with him, to his military-issued sidearm. I will taste the words, he thought. Then I'll taste silver and copper, then nothing. No, Gillian could not have known not in the way one knows in the waking world, not with her senses of sight and sound or the spinning gears of a logical mind. But as she lay in bed that night, Calvin Lucas remained present in her thoughts. He was now intricately connected to a cascade of memories that refused to remain below the surface. Part of Jillian, the part that had spent years perfecting the rhythmic motions of her two-step with the past, Begged her to set all this aside. She could acknowledge it, then let go. Compartmentalize, then fall into a dreamless sleep. Instead, Gillian decided to act. After all, he'd given her an in. He'd spoken of dreams. She thought back to the electrodes and psychotropics, to the months of neural conditioning. She thought of the canister. She thought of the moments before, the doubt of not knowing, the maybe I won't come out of it this time. She thought about the ways her own extraordinary nature had been subordinated to someone else's agenda. No more, she thought. Mostly, she thought of Calvin Lucas, and she felt an inexplicable urgency, the need to act now. She peeled away her covers and stood. She needed no light to stride across her room and reach to the spot on the dresser where it waited for her. She held the metallic cylinder in her hand for a moment, felt its weight in her palm, then unscrewed its lid. The aroma flooded her immediately, and although the change was familiar, it still came as a shock to her system. It always did. The hyper awareness kicked in before she even began to apply the ointment. She felt it at a molecular level each cell of her body illuminating as if billions of neon lights had suddenly flickered on. Still, she proceeded. She scooped a pea-sized dab of it onto her index finger, began to spread it thinly across her cheekbones. She could hear her neighbors now, some arguing, some whispering intimate words, some droning mundanely as their partner pretended to listen. Next door, down the hall, above her, below the voices resolved into a hum. She smeared the ointment across her face, onto temple and chin, then around her mouth, and into the groove of her philtrum. Its coolness seeped in, settled into her subdermal tissue, and now she felt the ebbs and flows of air currents in every room of her apartment, and beyond. She felt air displace around the sky cars that rushed outside her window. Every cell in her body vibrated with their movement. She blinked and saw the shapes of furniture and wall hangings, saw them resolve into a colorful tableau despite the absolute darkness. Then she saw through her walls, saw the city stretched out over the horizon and the insectoid shapes of people walking the street a thousand stories below. She rubbed the ointment on her neck and clavicles, heard the city's lights, smelled its frenetic movement, tasted the flavors of conversation and music coming around her. These sensations swelled as every molecule in her skin and muscle and bone caught fire. And then she was out, collapsed to the floor, released into the world of dreams. Of course there was a flash of light. Cal had expected as much. But he had also expected this to be his final sensation, flitting past in the minutest instant. He did not expect the moment to stretch out before him. He did not expect time's forward motion to simply cease. But it had, and the escape he'd hoped for was replaced by an agonizing awareness of himself as a purely physical being. He was wholly material, located firmly in time and place, even though his surroundings had been utterly absorbed by pure white light. there would be no shuffling off. He did not drift into sleep, into dreams. Did not drift, but felt a hand clasp his wrist, a vice grip that dug to his bone like a set of bestial jaws. The pain of it seared through and tore away the curtain of white light. When she walked, Gillian was a being of pure instinct, of awareness of all that was now, and of the moment's demands of her. She always knew where she was needed. She was upon Calvin Lucas in an instant. He was in the final dream place, the one before, the one beyond which there were none. She had less than a moment to act, but it was enough. They stood on the surface of the moon, basked in the reflection of the sun's light off lunar dust and rock. Cal wore only his bedclothes, no suit, No tank. But his flesh was human, his posture upright. He felt the ache of an old wound in his ribcage, just below his heart. He could make out her shape before him, as if she were hewn from the moon's rocky surface. Or perhaps she was composed of the light itself. Either way, he understood. She had carved herself out of the raw material of his mindscape. And she was speaking. "'This isn't what I meant,' came her voice. "'No? Should I have done it faster?' he spat. Cal was surprised by the venom in his own words, by the rage that radiated from some central place and permeated every muscle and fiber in his body. The gleaming, statuesque spire of rock before him resolved further into human shape. Spoke again. "'Mr. Lucas. Cal.' "'I'm so sorry. I couldn't have—' But seeing her materialize fully before him, hearing the fully human intonation of Dr. Balsam's voice, Cal felt his anger surge. "'You were supposed to fix this!' he shouted hoarsely. "'To make it go away!' Even as the words escaped his lips, Cal felt the rocky lunar surface beneath him bubble up like tar, felt his feet sink in, felt it gel around his ankles and harden once more. It pulled him, dragged him along as if on invisible tracks, drawing him toward the crisp line of the veil where dark met light. When he arrived, she was there before him, standing just within the veil's shadow. Or was that right? He stared at her and could see her features clearly. He held out his hands, palms up, and saw suddenly that his own figure was draped in shade. Cal looked back over his shoulder and saw Lunar Base 3 behind him, a dark obelisk standing out on an even darker sky, distinguishable only because its edges marked the place where stars stopped. Twin trenches stretched out from the building's base, and Cal stood between them. He looked forward again to see the track's parallel lines formed a pathway before him, out onto the illuminated surface of the other side where Dr. Balsam stood waiting for him. He noticed his feet were free. Cal's head spun, and the swell of anger from moments before gave way to exasperation. I, look, I can't take that step. I know what will happen. I think you do, too. But she smiled and said, You won't be alone and it was tempting. He almost lifted his foot, almost took the step. Almost. Cal watched the way the light glinted off the lunar rock just across the veil. Calling it moonlight isn't right, of course, he said, now speaking in slow, measured words. The light comes from the sun. Everyone knows that but the way it catches, the way it glistens off the moon rock. There's a certain magic in that, isn't there? The word magic tripped off his tongue, conveying both wonder and resentment. He pursed his lips, forced himself to swallow dryly, and continued. Back home, on earth, the light just doesn't get quite intense enough most of the time. Maybe it's the wavelength or something. The science of it's over my head. Either way, it doesn't do the trick until it's reached that perfect circle. doesn't trigger the transformation until it's full. But here, there's so goddamn much of it. Once you cross over, it does the trick and then some. When they cut us loose up here for the first time... We were more than the monsters we'd become at home, a hundred times more. We were... We were gods. Terrible gods. The ones you pray to for appeasement, not for love or mercy. Cal took a breath, then said, Stop me if you've heard this one. She only raised an eyebrow and gave him a look. Humor me, it said. He kept going. The Proximans didn't know Earth legend. If they did, they'd have used silver much sooner. By the time they discovered they could hurt us, we had them in so bad a route that our standard forces could finish the job just fine on their own. Only four of us, though. They called us special ops. Only four of us set foot on Earth again. Cal paused noted her seemingly endless capacity to listen. "'I'm sorry. Sorry I yelled at you,' he said after a moment. "'I guess, well, I needed someone to blame, and someone to carry the burden of my decision for me.' The near whisper of Dr. Balsam's voice carried clearly across the sharp line of the veil. "'I was only a kid.' she said. My parents volunteered me. Hair prickled on the back of Cal's neck, and his chest constricted. He silenced all other thoughts. Listened. They took me in, she continued. Let those people drug me. Let them They did all kinds of things. It's not really clear. I remember the stim pads on my temples. "'the the acrid taste of the stuff they'd make me drink burning my tongue. "'Then, after I don't know how long, "'I was home again, "'and my parents taught me to apply the ointment each night. "'Said it was just lotion, to smell good, feel good. "'But it was the sensory trigger. "'They tried different variations over months and months. "'The first time it worked... The first night it woke, the latent part of my brain the experiments had tapped into. I thought the entire world was on fire. Then. Cal cleared his throat gently. Then said. You walked. You walked into someone else's dreams. Jillian nodded. Jesus. That must have been the early stages of Martian. Way back. I was a child, she said, and I was one of the first. You wouldn't have been born yet, but... But it was real, too, Cal said. Jesus. Before the age of ten, they'd already used me to steal state secrets, or to exploit people's fears. Sometimes I'd work on one target for weeks on end, poking and prodding at the landscape of their dreams until I'd affected their waking behavior. I was the nudge, the push, to shape policy just the way our side wanted it. Cal resisted the urge to step forward to her, to put his hand on her arm, to give her some silent gesture of comfort and camaraderie. But he stayed put, said, How'd you get out? His eyes stung. The moment stretched out like a long shadow. Jillian squeezed her eyes shut and spoke again, almost too quietly to hear. I decided one day that I didn't have to do what they told me. I decided that it was time they all forgot about me. I tore their minds down and built up something new. She paused. Not all of them survived the... the operation. Now it was Cal's turn to speak in a near whisper. So you could fix me, he asked. You really could take this away. I could kill you, she said. But more than that... Jillian paused over her next words. "'selecting them with the utmost care. "'You might not believe this now, "'but your past, your pain, all of this, "'you might need it some day. "'You might do something with it. "'You might do what you're doing now?' "'She nodded. "'About that, Doc.' he said, forcing himself to adopt a casual air. I think it's too late for me. It very rarely is. Her eyes were still screwed shut. Without opening them, she extended a hand forward. A shadow fell onto it as it crossed a calfside side of the veil. He took it. Swallowed. Okay, but... When I cross, this isn't one of those dreams I wake up from, right? Jillian opened her eyes, and the thin line of her lip twitched into an almost mischievous smile. You know, one of the most surprising side effects they observed in the early days of the Walker experiments was the temporal displacement. A half-thought. A flicker of a forgotten feeling flashed across Cal's mind. But just by a matter of minutes, she interrupted. See, it turns out dream space exists outside what we perceive as the linear flow of time. Sometimes the dreamer... Sometimes they woke before falling asleep. That feeling again but Cal resisted it one last time. He looked down, loosened his grip, nearly let go. And what do I have waiting for me when I wake? The sullenness in his voice was almost perfunctory. Next Thursday. It was, Cal remarked with some surprise, enough. He tightened his grip, she squeezed back, and pain seared into his wrist. He didn't flinch. Instead, he took a single step forward and was awash in light. Cal held the antique pistol, a parting gift, meant to be more symbolic than practical, in his left hand. His right hand was gloved, and it pinched a mangled silver ball between finger and thumb. He stared at these objects for a long minute, unable to move. But then he did move. He set his handgun down and pulled at his glove, inverting it and casing it around the silver ball. Then, in a brisk motion, he swept across the room and deposited the handful in the compactor chute built into his apartment wall. He heard a metallic crunch, and then the familiar hollow series of thumps. With great care, Cal stowed his gun in its case, "'and tucked it away in its safe. "'Soon he lay in bed, "'staring at dark shadows on a dark ceiling. "'He thought about tomorrow, "'and the next day, "'and the next. "'And although these thoughts brought little comfort, "'he thought them anyway, "'and didn't shy away. "'Eventually he slept. "'Jillian did not sleep that night. In the morning, she decided to take a few days off. She caught up on laundry, exercised, then just sat and thought. She thought about her past, letting memories flood her consciousness. She sank back into them, soaked them up, allowed herself to dwell with them for a while. There was no dance. She and her past simply cohabitated, existed in that shared space. Eventually, she thought about the future. An idea occurred to her, one she couldn't shake. She mulled it over again and again, then decided. She would propose it to him that Thursday. After all, two people with histories like theirs? Well, they could make a lot of trouble. It wasn't a very safe thought, but she'd spent a long time playing it safe and some people had trouble coming. Four words rattled in Calvin Lucas's mind the following Thursday as he crossed the skyway to Dr. Gillian Balsam's office. The words had played in his head like a short, lilting cannon for nearly a week now. Their rat-a-tat-tat resounded even as he reached for the door handle. His rib hurt, as did his right wrist, which seared with a bone-deep pain. Pain. Always pain. But at least he'd woken each morning without remembering dreams. They'd been replaced by a perpetual chorus of four words. Annoying, yes, but he could live with that. He did not know what he would say to her, beyond the short, simple phrase he had rehearsed. Two words. Not four. Nothing poetic. Every day, mundane, and the right ones for the occasion. Mr. Lucas, Dr. Balsam said, standing as he entered. Cal opened his mouth to speak. What next? echoed his words. Jillian grinned.
2: And there you go. Oh, keep on writing, PJ. Keep on writing, sir. Thank you indeed. Oh, it's nice to, just for you to consider putting in the Starship. So that's fantastic. And Anthony, lad. Hey, you are a star, honestly. Thank you so much. So, yes, so, Amy H. Sturgis. Ames, me girl.
1: Hello, my friends. It's time for another look back into genre history, and today I would like to recommend a new book hot off the press just published last month by Quirk Books called Monster She Wrote, The Women Who Pioneered Horror and Speculative Fiction by Lisa Kroger and Melanie R. Anderson. This book is a treat. Let me tell you first a bit about the authors. Lisa Kroger's short fiction has appeared in Cemetery Dance magazine and the anthology Lost Highways, Dark Fictions from the Road. She has contributed to the Encyclopedia of the Vampire and Horror Literature through History and holds a Ph.D. in English. Melanie R. Anderson is an assistant professor of English at Delta State University in Cleveland, Mississippi, and her academic publication Spectrality in the Novels of Toni Morrison was a winner of the 2014 South Central MLA Book Prize, and she holds a PhD in American Literature. The two together co-host the No Fear Cast podcast, and that's not N-O fear, that's K-N-O-W fear. The no-fear cast. Now, although they're PhDs, uh, both authors, this is not an academic work. This is a popular work. It is meant to be accessible, and it is charming and extremely reader-friendly. So what is this book meant to do? I'm going to steal the official blurb here. Horror and speculative fiction wouldn't exist without the women who created it, from forgotten visionaries like Margaret Mad Madge Cavendish to literary icons like Mary Shelley and Shirley Jackson to modern-era marvels such as Anne Rice and Helen Oyeyemi. Women authors have always been at the vanguard of frightening fiction, and their life stories are as intriguing as the novels, short stories, and novellas they crafted part biography, part reader's guide. Monsters, she wrote, will introduce you to more than a hundred authors and over 200 of their mysterious and spine-tingling tales. Frankenstein was just the beginning. Meet even more terrifying monsters and the women who unleashed them. Now, how cool is that? So, the book, is broken up into sections, and each section then has a biography of an author. It includes what to read next, suggested texts, great quotes from these works. And again, it is very accessible, reader-friendly. You can read a section, you can read cover to cover, you can look up just the authors you're interested in. And I want to tell you a bit about the contents, because I'm just having a great time going through this book. Part one, The Founding Mothers, includes several authors, in fact, that I have discussed here on Starship Sofa, including Margaret Cavendish, who was the focus of my Looking Back segment on episode 123, Anne Radcliffe, who was the focus of my segment in episode 328, and Mary Shelley, who I have talked about quite a lot, uh, also her mother, Mary Wollstonecraft, I've covered her in multiple different segments, but uh, particularly in a three-part series that ran over episodes 377, 382, and 386. But there are other authors here also covered that are just great and very much worth your attention. Part two is Haunting Tales, talking about uh, early Gothic works. Part three, Cult of the Occult. Part four, The Women Who Wrote the Pulps. Definitely, definitely related to our interests with science fiction. Part five, Haunting the Home. Part six, Paperback Horror. Each of these sections includes parts dedicated to five or six different authors. And as you can tell, there's a lot of blurring of the lines between gothic, horror, fantasy, and science fiction. And each woman also gets her own subtitle so that there's a sense of the main idea of her works or the main contribution of her works. So that, for example, you have Anne Radcliffe as terror over horror, And Toni Morrison, Haunted by History. And Elizabeth Ingstrom, Monstrosity in the Mundane. The next section, Part 7, is The New Goths. And lastly, Part 8, perhaps the one most related to our interests, save uh, the Founding Mothers and the Women Who Wrote the Pulps, The Future of Horror and Speculative Fiction. And I want to dwell here for a minute and talk about the categories that the authors provide. The first is The New Weird, Lovecraft Revisited and Revised. And there are some amazing authors mentioned here, two of my favorites being Caitlin R. Kiernan and Kidge Johnson. Even sections that don't sound particularly science fictional, will surprise you. For example, the next section, The New Vampire, includes discussion of science fiction authors like Octavia Butler and Susie McKee Charnas. One of the many pithy, amazing quotes included in the book is from Fledgling by Octavia Butler. When your rage is choking you, it is best to say nothing. The next section is The New Apocalypse, and mentions, frankly, some of the greats, as far as I'm concerned, Suzanne Collins, Nnedi Okorafor, N.K. Jemisin, Rebecca Roanhorse, among others. The final section, appropriate for a book called Monster She Wrote, is about the new serial killer. The book then goes on with a glossary that defines terms that get thrown around a lot, but not often clarify terms like cosmic horror or penny dreadful or pulps or weird fiction. And then for the nerds like me, there's a nice end note section uh this as, as i said isn't exactly a scholarly work but yet it is very well researched and the citations show that so there's a nice endnote section there And then there's a section on suggested reading. As the authors say, it quickly became clear when writing the book there were too many women writers to include in a single volume. And so, uh, if you're wondering what to read next, they say, we can help. So there's a general reading section that covers other authors and some great anthologies, some great histories, And then there is a section that is more reading about individual authors and topics already covered in the book. Again, this is just so useful in terms of where to go next, what to read. Ah, it's just great. And then an index. And as I said before, each section also includes suggested readings as well as quotes. So it's very handy and practical for use as a reader's guide, a way of touring centuries' worth of works, great works in speculative fiction by women, and picking out what to read, noting what you've already read, and maybe finding some new authors. I certainly did in reading this book. A particularly nice feature of this book is that not only does Each section provide a not-to-be-missed reading recommendation and then suggestions of other works by the author to also try, but suggestions of related works. If you like this author, you might also want to try another author. So, for example, in the section called The New Goths, one of the biographies is of Susan Hill author of, among many other works, The Woman in Black, which is, of course, not to be missed, and that's the not-to-be-missed work. Other works, such as I'm King of the Castle and The Bird of Night, are in the Also Try section. And then lastly, in related works, the authors recommend that you try Elizabeth Hand's Wilding Hall. Which is a much later work, and I think a really good connection to make in terms of works with a similar effect and similar mood and similar tone. So, again, this is just a gift to readers. It's got fun factoids, it's got thoughtful commentary, terrific suggestions in a package that is eye poppingly neon green fun. <laughs> It's directly related to our interests in science fiction. And hey, I am the first person to want to make the Halloween season last just a little bit longer. It's only November. That's almost October, isn't it? So I would recommend picking up Monster She Wrote, The Women Who Pioneered Horror and Speculative Fiction by Lisa Kroger and Melanie R. Anderson. I hope this recommendation was of interest to you and I look forward to joining you again very soon for something completely different when we take another look back into genre history thank you
2: there you go there you go that, Amy thank you oh big hugs big hugs thank you so much indeed it's, oh, it's so nice to have you <laughs> didn't sound right at all hey Vicar. oh right anyway sorry hey, I'm just you know what I mean that is, today's show up. Support please, that would be fantastic. Patreon is just would help out so much. Links on front of the website as well. Two dollars. Come on man, two dollars you get it ad free. Until next week, just let us say, good night from me.
4: This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website www.districtofwonders.com Thank you for listening. I don't get out much I've barely left the ground I'm tuning in to your transmissions I'm a waiting to be found And I'm building rockets I'm pointing them to it's going slowly, It won't get to you anytime soon Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio, I want to talk to you This signal's going light speed By the time I get my say I might already be on to you and on my way